This week's podcast explores the history behind John Swan and Sons through the short history book entitled Great Livestock Salesman by Andrew Humphreys, MBE. This account of John Swan and Sons describes how one of the companies that became part of the H&H family sensed the direction of change within agriculture and identified the key skills which were required for success. One reader, John Huddart, chats today to Andrew about his book. Uh, hello. In this podcast, we're going to talk to Andrew Humphreys, who's uh, written an excellent monograph about some unsung heroes, if you like, of the agricultural world. That's John Swan and Sons, who were, according to the book, great livestock salesmen. Um, and uh, he's here talking to us now about the book and how it came to be written and what is it, what's in it. Uh, Andrew, what's, it's about the unsung heroes of the agricultural revolution. Are, are you really sure they were unappreciated? Yes, if, um, if I cast my mind back to school, we were given, you know, people like Turnip Townsend and Jethro Tull, uh, as though they had appeared like mushrooms and uh, done something magic and took all the credit, whereas the people that were there supporting them or preceding them or following them uh, really didn't get a look in. So uh, I think it's really important to recognise all the players in the game, and some of them are quite extraordinary. They are indeed. So you'd say that if they hadn't been there, these auctioneers and traders, um, nothing would have happened in agriculture at all? Well, the, the wheels wouldn't have been turning in quite the same way. And certainly the consumers of food and indeed the producers of food would have been um, uh, left uh, without the means of making progress uh, which is obviously so critical, joining up, joining up elements in the food chain, joining up different interests in the, in the process. And for those great heroic improvers, yes, they were interesting, but probably less interesting than a lot of the people that were behind them. And a lot of people who were behind the, the auctioneers are the drovers that you begin the story with. Uh, who seem to be the, the descendants of the, the Border Reavers. Uh, can you really trace them back to those times? No, no uh, I wouldn't see them as the uh, descendants of the Border Reavers. You've probably heard of the term blackmail, which uh, describes the Border Reavers, that uh, if you gave them money, they wouldn't steal your cattle. But you maybe haven't heard of green mail, which was the way in which drovers paid for uh, grazing en route uh, from wherever they started to wherever they finished. So the, um, the drovers were paying for something, the reavers were taking something, but they were probably related. I see. So do you think some of their ancestors were, were the reavers? Indeed. If you look into the highlands as opposed to the borders, the yeah. droning families were also those who were behaving um, less well. Yes, right. quite clear. So, and in the, in the background of your story, there is this also the presence of the Union of the Crowns, 
which seems to have had a real effect on agriculture and also comes before this story starts. Is that, is that a fair, uh, fair summary of what happened? Yes, about, about 1700, um, industry was beginning to develop, urbanization was beginning to get a move on, and markets were no longer very local things. Food was having to travel a distance. And uh, in fact, if you read Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, he written in the 17, 1770s, he, he comments on how the, the value of cattle, for example, had uh, tripled uh, since the Union of the Crowns. The Union of the Crowns really opened up, particularly for Scotland, the route to the metropolis because the population in London was singularly uh, growing at a very dramatic rate. So it was quite important. So the drovers themselves would drive their animals for many, many miles. They, they weren't just regional, they were national figures, were they? They were. If, if you can think of droving almost like a network of roads, um, some of them would start in the Outer Hebrides or the Inner Hebrides or the northeast of Scotland, and almost like the tributaries of a river, they would drive their cattle south or their sheep in some cases, and uh, they would all meet at a convenient point like Stirling or Falkirk, um, where they would hold great fairs and uh, sales. So it was uh, drawing cattle from really a very wide area, indeed from, from Ireland as well, via Galloway. I see, right. And if you're in the countryside and you come across a country lane which is just unusually wide, much wider than the usual hedge, road, hedge. Is it likely to have been part of a drove route? It, it could well have been, although um, pre-1770 roads were wider because they hadn't learned how to put stone down on roads. And they, had to, they had to actually make more space for the stock to, to pass through. But the drove roads um, certainly uh, were quite important uh, post-droving, it actually created a network of, uh, of direction from north to south very often, um, which people adopted um, after droving had long since gone. But, but the, quality, the quality of the road was quite important to the drovers, and they, the drovers had lots of skills. Uh, they needed, let's say, somebody starting in the in the highlands um, and they were aiming for uh, Falkirk or, or somewhere even further south, um, they might be traveling 150 miles. Now you don't, it doesn't take a genius to realize that if you uh, arrive the day after the sale, you're in difficulty. If you arrive too early, you've got stock that then have to be fed and that's costly. So actually judging the distance pace, best way to go, um, how not to push the cattle too hard. I mean, on poor roads, they might do seven, eight miles a day. On good roads, which the skilled drovers would know about, they would get um, perhaps 10, 12, 14 miles a day. So it was a very, very skilled business, and you had to be licensed to be a drover. Oh, and that right. Meant you had to be a householder. 
basically. Right. So when the drovers uh, get to the fairs and trysts, they they obviously have to go through the business of selling and negotiating. And at, at, at this point, people like the, the swans come into the story. Um, they do. That, yeah. Because the drovers were very skilled at moving the stock, uh, but they weren't necessarily skilled at selling. And similarly, the owners of the stock, say in the highlands, um, the landowners, um, would not be skilled either at droving or indeed at selling. In fact, before these um, trysts were held, um, buyers would actually go out into the countryside and buy directly from the individual farms. And that was pretty disastrous for farmers because they didn't understand markets, they didn't have access to newspapers, and they were picked off. So these gatherings to sell stock were very important and in the interests of the sellers and indeed of the buyers because they then would get a good, a, a good choice. So it's... Um, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting how the, uh, the trysts worked, and they were very large. You know, you could get 10, 20, 30,000 stocks sold in a day, and with a two- or three-day trysts, you are talking about very large numbers, and some of the droves would be a, a 1,000 strong. You can imagine but, walking a 1,000 cattle 150 miles. So these were annual events, monthly events? How often did they take place? They were largely seasonal, and the right. big twists were in the autumn. So in somewhere like Falkirk, which was the sort of mecca quite a lot of years, they would have um, a tryst in August, they would have a tryst in September, and a tryst in October. And each of those, a bit like sales today, would be geared to a particular product being on sale at that time. Um, for example, the October one, uh, they would have sheep on one day and cattle on another day. And at the later sales, which was really clearing up sale for the, the less good stock, they were referred to as straw treaders. People were buying them just to take them back onto arable farms and tread straw and produce farmyard manure. Mm -hmm. These were not stock so it was quite a specialized business mm -hmm. so the the what from what you're saying the fairs and trysts they haven't really disappeared at all they've just transformed themselves into into the annual bull sale at sterling and the likes of that yeah, the, the, yes they have except that the trysts were in um, relatively small communities um where the the gathering for a sale would be accompanied by a fair. And it was the one opportunity that people in a rural setting would have to let their hair down and have some fun. And you would see jugglers and clowns and musicians mixed in amongst the sellers of the livestock. It really was a, an absolutely uh, dynamic scene. So when the swans, the swans arrived and took part in this, uh, and they would be more that they would be one of a number of auctioneers and sellers that uh, that arrived, would they? Initially, not auctioneers. In fact, John Swan himself never sold at auction, although his sons did. They were salesmen, 
And whereas the drovers were skilled at their job, um, the swans were simply good at selling. So they would sell other people's stock for them that would come in the form of droves. But they, their particular contribution was that they were people of integrity. They were people who were able to do bookkeeping, which not many people could in those days. And they had an uncanny ability to be able to value stock. And that really was the hallmark of the swans. They were trustworthy, they were people of integrity. They could identify the value of stock. And they were able to um, impart almost subliminally um, ideas of change and new new forms of agriculture that were coming in alongside uh, this period in, in history. And John Swan actually took on his two sons, Tom and James, literally as apprentices. And while they were boys, they never went to school on a Wednesday because Wednesday, father sent them to the auction and got them to value stock. And their valuations were marked by him as their homework. And they picked up the ability to value stock uh, to a, a very high degree. And that's really what uh, was the hallmark of the swans. Right. So what, what, where, where they, did they have, uh, did they just meet with different t sellers and uh, purchasers? So was there an auction aspect of it going on? No, no, not at the not at the trysts. There weren't yeah. auctions. What happened was that you would arrive with your drove, you would pay a toll going into the uh, the area set aside for the sale at um, at Falkirk, for example. It was a, a, an area of moorland just outside the the town, um, and there would be a space allotted to you, and you had to keep your stock on that space. Mm -hmm. You could only speak to one potential buyer at a time, um, and the bargain was done on the clap of a hand. Once you had shaken hands or clapped hands with the, with the, the, the seller, the buyer then was um, committed to make the purchase unless some other arrangement uh, uh, was agreed at the time. But So the, the trysts were subject to quite strict rules because it, it, it could be absolute chaos. It had to be reasonably well organized. And they didn't have the sort of pens and, and facilities that you would see in a modern uh, auction yard. Right. So w at what stage did the, the, did the Swans decide that the auction ring system would work well for both buyers and sellers. The Swans had noticed that people were getting interested in the idea of auctions. There was a restriction because there was a taxation paid on auction marts and it rather held back their, their establishment. But once the tax liability was removed, people got really quite interested. So Oliver started at Hoyk and uh, the Swans followed soon afterwards at Earlston, and that was where Mrs. Swan, bless her, realized that they were fishing in rather a small pool, and they needed to be 
somewhere else. And she, um, she got number of noble worthies to write uh, uh, letters of recommendation on John Swan to enable him to move to uh, St. Boswell's. Reading the story, uh, it does seem that she's a very key figure in the establishment of the of the swans and their and their markets. Is that is that a fair assessment? Without her, almost they wouldn't quite have gone in that direction. I'm tempted to say, and what's new? In <laughs> <laughs> agricultural education, and uh, it was always mother who determined whether yeah. whether son or daughter came to Newton Rig, not father, despite what they might say. Yes. Um, she was. She was very astute, um, but but very diplomatic. She knew how to get the best out of them, and uh, and I suspect there's a lot more about Mrs. Swan behind the scenes that we don't know. But we know that she pushed them to go to St. Boswell. She organised the references for them, and it's pretty obvious she was a key person in that process. So they became crucial in all sorts of aspects of, of uh, uh, livestock breeding. Would you say that they actually influenced the, the, the way breeds were improved in, in the 19th century? Yes, they did. They influenced both the, uh, the breeds uh, that were, were used and particularly in the, in the sheep world. Because, again, we have the heroic improver, Robert Bakewell, who produced his famous uh, Lester's, which actually produced meat, was just about inedible, but uh, the books don't, uh, don't tell you that. Um, and about, um, the, well, in the, in the 1880s, they were still looking for the right breed to cross with the half-bred lambs. And uh, it was the swans and others like them that brought the Oxford down into the borders, and that completed the jigsaw and brought tremendous benefit to the sheep sector. It really completed what we called a stratified system of breeding involving the hill farms, the marginal farms, and the lowland farms. And the lowland farms producing the, the terminal sire, now it would be the Texel or used to be the Suffolk, um, to really uh, complete the list of characteristics that we had in our sheep. Mm -hmm. And in the area of food distribution, um, they seem to have been crucial in, in helping food to be sent around the country much more efficiently. Uh, is it true to say that cities could have starved without them? Uh, it, it, yes, it, I don't know about starved, but they certainly would not have been well fed um, and what was happening in the meantime, uh, and this was seen when the swans were at uh, Falkirk in the 1860s, was that the railway network was developing, and suddenly it was all change. And you then had the development of auction marts, and they were virtually all sited near to railways. And if you look at where auction marts have been or are, most of them at that time were put next to the railways. So the droving became uh, unnecessary. Right. Instead of taking weeks to move stock from A to B, but more importantly, if you were uh, in, say, a place like, say, 
the Northeast Highlands, uh, instead of walking your cattle um, 100, 150 miles down to Edinburgh or Falkirk to a tryst, um, you could put them on a train in, Ed, in uh, Aberdeen and uh, send them uh, much more cheaply. But more importantly, it then meant that farmers in the arable areas of northeast Scotland could actually grow crops and fatten the animals themselves and then market the animals by rail, um, which was unheard of. So it had a tremendous impact on the development of the agricultural economy. But the sighting of the auction mart, places like Lazenby and um, Carlisle and Penrith, Troutbeck, they're all near the railways, just as new auctions these days tend to be next to the motorways. So the sighting of the auction mart in relation to the trade and uh, where the animals were going for consumption was really very important. And you will see that people like the swans, and I mentioned this, there's a little piece at the back of the book, you will see that they were involved in selling at lots of different places at different points in history. But their great fame really grew at St. Boswell's and was linked inevitably to the Kelso top sales, which are world famous. Yes, yes, yes. And they then got involved in importing cattle from America, didn't they? Um, were they instrumental in that trade or did they just see it was occurring and, and manage to get involved in it? Well, they were early. You know, at, um, at Falkirk, at that uh, first sighting of John Swan, H.H. Um, Dixon, who wrote As the Druid, uh, referred to the long lines of trucks and the railways were already in the 1860s uh, into Falkirk. Well, those same railways were opening up the new world so that people could come from the hinterland in North America and get to the coast. The steamships could bring them across to Europe. So, you know, steam, and actually at the Highland Agricultural Society, I forget which year, the toast at the annual dinner was steam is your Highland drover. <laughs> the drover had been replaced by the steam engine. And that was bringing stock in from uh, the New World as well as moving stock within Britain. And the swans were early uh, dipping their foot into the water. Uh, it took time because moving stock by rail was not straightforward. There was um, the question of um, the conditions under which animals were in railway wagons and rules for welfare had to be brought in. And similarly, on boats crossing the Atlantic, they would load them up and then if they hit bad weather, they find they too much weight on board and they would have to throw a certain number of stock into the water in order to survive. So it was, it was a question of finding out how to do it, how to do it well, and how to actually exercise high standards of animal welfare, because clearly if stock arrived in the wrong order, then their value would be very much devalued. And that welfare aspect has really been important at every stage in this developmental process. 
So they weren't simply businessmen. They had a they had a bigger picture of agriculture in the back of their mind in terms of improvement and the food supply and even welfare. They they just wanted it to make money. Well, they were they were consummate professionals right. and they were at the top of the tree. And indeed, uh, John Swan uh, and sons didn't just have the two sons as apprentices. They actually had other people who then set up their own auction companies elsewhere. So there are a number of auction companies that actually have their origins in John Swan and Sons. Right. That's what that's what being a leader in the field. So they were they, they were the, the, the center of center of the, the auction movement in the borders and in Scotland and so on. Uh, and other yes. other people either grew away from them or imitated them, did they? Yes, I mean, it, it was horses for courses. Um, th their specialisms in terms of what they were selling related to the sort of stock in their own district and in other districts, um, say like Perth, where you had um, big breeders of pedigree, uh, beef shorthorn cattle, they would have a trade of their own. But for uh, cheviot lambs, blackface lambs, half-bred lambs, and uh, certain classes of cattle, um, the swans were uh, very, very important. And in their part of Scotland, in the sort of east and the borders, stock were actually coming in from the continent as well. You know, there was a, there was a steamship uh, trade bringing stock in from places like Copenhagen. So, you know, things were moving, moving quickly, and with the population growing rapidly, imports were probably a necessary part of uh, feeding the nation, as they are now. So swans were, were, were once in competition with uh, Harrison and Hetherington, who now, of course, are their owners, um, but came first, came before H&H, &H, presumably. Yes, yes. Uh, well... They did, but of course the origin of H and H starts, I suppose, really in in Penrith, yes. um, and then then Carlisle. So they're coming from a a, a different uh, direction, and also uh, interacting with the the droving trade and the movement of stock um, coming from a slightly geographical area, because uh, east and west. You know, things were moving north-south rather than east-west. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. So, if we if we take the story right up to today, when uh, Swans is now part of another uh, a larger organisation and still going strong, but what would the Swans themselves have made of of today's market conditions about the European market, about Brexit, and what what they thought about Scottish independence, which sounds a bit like moving away from the Union of Crowns, doesn't it? Well, the first thing might have been to talk to Mrs. Swan. <laughs> but, but realistically, they had lived lives going through fundamental changes. Think about it, droving, and then steam coming in, railways, steamships, modern markets as we now uh, think of them, changing breeds and so on. Um, it, was, it was a fast-moving world. And if they were here today, they would be looking for the opportunities. They would be positive. You know, how can we make the most of this and how can we do things which are good for us 
and good for the people who supply us or for whom we work. So they would have been, they, they certainly might not have approved, but in every dramatic change, there are opportunities for some. And it's because they could see those opportunities. I mean, for example, um, that even at the time of Falkirk, the, a lot of drovers were, were losing huge, huge amounts of money. They, they were poor at bookkeeping. The swans were meticulous. They were always wrote things down. They always kept records. They knew what things cost. They knew what price to ask. That's what made them leaders in the field. Well, I think it's Heraclitus, the, the philosopher, who said, the only constant is change. You can't put your foot in the same river twice. And that's true of agriculture, isn't yes, it? it is, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, for a, for a very illuminating uh, journey through the, the, the story itself and into the, some of the many fascinating side issues that the book raises. And I've spoken to several people who read and enjoyed the book and think of it as, as being an, a, a door opening into a world they'd never thought of. So well, I, I look forward to your next volume, whatever it may be about. Well, I hope somebody out there will know who Mrs. Swan yes. was. I have an idea, but I haven't been able to. I haven't been able to confirm it, so it'd be wrong for me to guess. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. We hope you enjoyed this fascinating insight into the book from the author himself. This short history book is now on sale, with proceeds going to the RSABI. Why not treat yourself or a loved one as an ideal Christmas present this year? Published by our printing division, H&H &H Reads, this book is available for just £5 at all Harrison and Hetherington auction marts or please call Alison Agnew on telephone number 01228 406 332. And by the way, if you do know Mrs Swan's name, please do let us know. Thank you.